Hey Anthem, my name is Patrick and I'm so excited to be with you today. Honestly, I'm so honored uh, that Colin called and asked me to be a part of your service and to speak a little bit in the series that you're on uh, with Galatians. And uh, Colin's been a friend for a long time. In fact, we were at Kensington Church together uh, in the Metro Detroit area. And I didn't know it at the time, uh, but Colin uh, was going to obviously plant Anthem. We were in conversations about that. We got to watch them kind of go through the process uh, of going to a new city and starting a new church and kind parachuting in and, and meeting new people and we we're watching them from a distance and I didn't know it at the time uh, but God was actually going to call us to do something very similar in a different part of the country and so uh, my wife and I our family along with 11 other families moved to Columbus Ohio uh, this past year to launch Nouveau Church here which is a brand new church uh, here in the Columbus area and I'll just tell you it's just been such an honor uh, to watch you guys start Anthem, to see all the things that God has already done. Uh, and we just admire and love Colin and Liz so much. Um, and uh, again, thank you so much for having me. We'd love to be a part of today. So I wanted to spend just a minute uh, introducing you to our family so you can kind of learn a little bit more about me. Uh, this is my uh, this is my family. This is my wife, Emily. Uh, Emily and I met in college. Uh, I literally went to the library to pick up girls because my mom told me if you can find a pretty girl at the library, that's a win. I met Emily and then eight years later landed that plane. So we uh, we dated for a long time, dated throughout college, uh, and now we're married. And this is our son, Henry. Henry is four years old. Uh, and that's our daughter, Eleanor. Eleanor is two years old. And uh, and yeah, we're living the dream here in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, I actually moved here. Uh, I told you 11 other families. Two of those families were my uh, roommates from college. And so we got we to come here with friends. Uh, and it's been an amazing, amazing journey uh, so far. Now, I know over the last several weeks, uh, what you guys have been doing is you been walking through uh, an area of the Bible called Galatians, and it's one of my favorite areas of the Bible to look at and to study. And if you're here, maybe you're not a church person, or if you've never been to church before, or maybe uh, you're a person who's kind of like just curious about faith or religion, what we're going to talk about today is actually one of the like foundational parts of Christianity that often I think gets overlooked for some of the other things that we talk about. Um, and then the, the, the part of Galatians that we're going to look at today is also a very interesting part because it's a callback to an old, old ancient uh, narrative, an old ancient story, and, and the person who kind of talks about it flips it on its head. It's so much fun. So we're going to look at that. So to kick us off, what I want you to do is I want you to take a minute. I want you to imagine your life back when you were like 10, 11, or 12 years old. Right? For some of you, you're like, oh, that's a long time ago. For some of you, that was just maybe a decade ago. Maybe some of you in the room, that was like four years ago. I, I have no idea, right? So take yourself back maybe to the 70s or 80s or 90s or early 2000s or 50s or 60s as well. Take yourself back to the time that you were about 10, 11, 12 years old. I want you to think about the things that you were pursuing back then, right? Maybe for you, it was like an athletic thing, right? Maybe you were an athlete. In fact, right now, if you were an athlete when you were a kid, go ahead, raise your hand, or maybe you do like a fist bump. I don't know, whatever athletes do. Yes, all right, some, that's great. Some of you, even as a kid, maybe you were like the bookworm or academic person, like you were pursuing that even as a kid, either by your choice or your parents' choice. If that was you, real quick, raise your hand, yeah? Okay, fantastic, right? Now, fast forward a little bit, right? Think about like middle school or high school. How many of you were like, you know, kind of pushing towards just friendships and relationships and popularity? Like that was really important to you. Come on, real quick. 
as a kid, don't lie, right? That was something that mattered to you. Yeah, absolutely. For some of you are doing that. For some of you, maybe you pursued, you know, maybe you were in the band. Do we have any of the band people in the room? Real quick, yeah. Yeah, the French horn players. I see you right there. That's fantastic, right? Maybe for some of you, though, maybe you were like pursuing, you know, other things. Maybe you were pursuing, you know, you know, relationships or friendships or dating relationships as you got into high school or college. Maybe maybe you were pursuing those kinds of things. And you know what's so interesting? We all have those areas of our lives, especially when we were younger, that we just sort of naturally sort of gravitated to um, in, in terms of pursuing things that we wanted. Right now, as you get older, those things are still there and you're still pursuing them and you're still kind of going after it. And sometimes it's healthy, sometimes it's not. But the thing about that is it just kind of shifts as you get older and it becomes a little bit more complex, doesn't it? Now, when you're a kid and you're like 10 years old, maybe you're pursuing things and maybe you're like striving for certain things, but it just feels a little bit different when you're a kid. There's a little bit more like innocence that's connected to the things that you're striving for. But then some of you have very clear moments of the things that you were pursuing that were actually connected to like the approval of other people, right? Like the, the people who are in the room that are athletes, you, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? Because you, you've seen it. it. It's like the kid who's like 9 or 10 or 11 years old and the parent is all about what they're doing. And there's like an approval, whether they mean to or not, that's connected to their performance. And then there's like this cyclical sort of process of, you know, the, the, the approval that is given. And then the, the kid who's like striving and striving and striving to get approval from the parent. This is true in academics. This could be true in relationships. This could be true in friendships. In fact, for many of us in the Western world, one of the things that's just kind of hardwired into us is this like, you know, propensity to strive to get things that we want. Now, that's not all bad. In fact, you know the good parts about reaching for things that maybe are out of your kind of reach or kind of going after or striving to be better at something or want to do something better, those kinds of things. It's not necessarily bad. But there is something that when that gets mixed in with the way that we view the divine or the way that we view God, or the way that we view the world around us or where we get approval from, it can get messy really quick. And as it pertains to your faith, striving is one of those things that is actually sort of like anti what Jesus teaches and especially what Paul teaches uh, in Galatians, right? Now, striving can flesh itself out in a lot of different ways when it comes to faith. One of the ways that striving fleshes itself out when it comes to faith is like I'm striving to check all of the boxes that I feel like I need to check, right? Now, if you come from a background that's maybe like a Catholic background or you come from a liturgical sort of background, there, there's often like this, this way of like, uh, you know, the systems are being in the world where there is this sort of rhythm to you know, uh, you know, the, the, this rhythm to checking boxes that, that are kind of lined up before you. And sometimes you engage and sometimes you don't. But there is a piece of it like, did I attend or did I not? That's true in the evangelical world as well. Like, did I do the thing or did I not do the thing? Did I do enough of the thing or did I not do enough of the thing? Am I actually working to make my faith happen? There's a connection towards striving in that way. And there's another way that we do this. And this is like striving to keep all the rules. And if you grew up in a church that felt maybe a little bit, you know, legalistic in this way, 
there was a part where you were probably told or indoctrinated with all of the things that you should not do, right? Like, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. And then all of a sudden what you were trying to do is not just try to do the good things or check all the right boxes, but you were also trying to make sure that you stayed away from the things that you shouldn't do. In fact, right now, I could probably give you a list of like 10, 15, 20 of those things. And if you grew up around church, you kind of shake your head like, yeah, there's this striving to keep the moral code of what it means to be this follower of Jesus or to be viewed as a good church person. And what gets wrapped up in that is kind of like the approval of the athlete with the, the parent or the academic with the parent or that sort of thing. Our view of God gets connected to our performance and either keeping the rules or checking all the boxes. And if you grew up in an environment like that or a church like that or a community of faith like that, it's easy to find yourself in these little traps that are kind of almost set for you in that way of thinking, right? It's easy to fall into like a comparison trap. Like this person seems to have it all together. This person seems to check all the boxes or keep most of the rules, certainly more rules than I kept. And all of a sudden there's a comparison gap when it comes to that. Sometimes it makes us feel less than when it comes to other people, right? This could even happen later on in life in our 20s or 30s or 40s or 50s, right? Where we think, you know, I'm just not capable of keeping the rules of, in that way to please God or make God happy. And then there's another one that's just really honest. And this is one that we don't really admit out loud very often. But sometimes there's this thing in us that just goes, I just don't feel like I'm enough. I don't have whatever it is within me to be able to keep the rules in that way or to check all the boxes that I feel like I need to check for God to be pleased with me. And we have a response to that. In fact, most people have kind of a kind of a, a deep response to that sort of thing, right? I put in my notes, I said this, that many people disengage from their faith because of their perceived failure, and you can almost say it this way, perceived failure to keep that faith or to do that faith good enough, right? Even if you are mildly engaged in your faith, there is something that can feel detrimental to your belief or faith in God if you look at all the rules that you should keep and then all of a sudden you acknowledge how few of them you actually consistently get, right? Or if you think about it in terms of checking all the right boxes or doing all the right things consistently, sometimes it can feel like a consistent failure. Now, there's that group of people, but then there's another group of people that's also extremely interesting for me, and I have these conversations all the time. There are also people who look at that, you know, kind of list of things to do or boxes to check or, you know, things to not do, you know, those sort of things. And what some people do is they change the standards of God to meet their reality of specifically like their current sin nature, right? Or they would, they would say, hey, obviously I can't keep the rules that way or obey the rules that way or check all the boxes. And so if that's the case, I must, I must not be able to level up to that Obviously, something's wrong, and they would lower the standards of God to try to meet the standards of God, and it creates a whole different sort of disconnect. And it's all wrapped up into you or me trying to strive to be in the good graces of God. Now, I put in my notes, and this is kind of like the, the part that we're going to spend the most time on today. Is I said, striving to be in good grace was never God's plan for you to experience His love. Now, I can say that on a screen, you can read that in this text, you can have a conversation about that. 
And it all sounds good, but when the rubber meets the road and you're actually living your life day to day, there is something that feels like it's hardwired in us, that there is a performance connection to receiving or experiencing the love of God. Now, Paul was a guy who wrote Galatians, and he wrote about half the New Testament, and he's an extremely brilliant thinker, extremely brilliant thinker. Uh, and one of my favorite, you know, most interesting things about Paul is he actually sort of took the church and kind of franchises in the ancient world, right? I mean, it just kind of went all over the place, and he brought this way of thinking about Jesus and, and talking about Jesus and, um, and, and, and looking at what Jesus actually did for the world. And he brought it to a group of people who at the time uh, was kind of disconnected from it, right? There was an early, in fact, this early debate over was the grace of God and the work of Jesus for everyone or was it just for a group of people? And there were teachers who were actually saying, hey, no, you know what? You might can be in this whole like follower of the way. That's how they were said, a follower of the way camp. But if you are, then you've got to make sure to check all the boxes that were connected to this previous tradition, right? Now, Paul, in, in some ways, writes Galatians to, you know, talk to this group of people who are living in an area of the world called Galatia. He was talking to them about how that's actually a false teaching. What, what was being taught about checking those kinds of boxes and coming into this previous custom and trying to, trying to be something that Jesus never really said you had to be, he says, no, 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 that's false teaching. And then what he does is he kind of outlines this beautiful narrative or gives this like allegory of what this actually means and how we actually apply this to our life. Now, if you haven't read the Old Testament or you're not super familiar with either Jewish texts or, you know, the Christian faith specifically as it pertains to the beginning parts of the Bible, this story might feel a little bit far-fetched or outlandish. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to walk you through it and we're going to actually see how Paul actually takes this beautiful narrative and story and wraps it in to some of the deepest parts of our own heart, right? So this is what Paul says in Galatians chapter 4. Here he says, he says, Tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? Now, I want to really quickly kind of show you, when we talk about under the law, what Paul is really talking about is legalistic kind of structures that force you to connect your performance to the love of God, right? Now, it's not about obeying the law. There are certain things that, obviously, I think we would probably all say we should obey when it comes to Scripture. But Paul is going, no, no, obedience is very different than being under the law or forcefully, in some ways, under the law to get connected to the love of God. And he's going, hey, are you not aware of all that the law says? Now, there's an implication here that says, hey, if you were aware of all that the law says, then you would already understand that you didn't quite measure up to that. That There wasn't a way to measure up to the standard that God had already set. And then what Paul does is he goes into this narrative and this story to kind of prove his point and talk about what this looks like. So here's what he says. He says, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and the other by a free woman. Now, if you're not familiar with this story, we're going to walk you through it. But he, he kind of goes on and outlines what happens next. He says, his son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as a result of the divine purpose. Now, let me walk you through what he's talking about because it'll make a lot more sense when you understand Abraham. Abraham was very connected to the beginning parts of the world and the Bible. And you have all these narratives connected to how God promised Abraham there'd be these generations that flowed through him. 
Abraham was an older guy. Abraham was married to a woman named Sarah. They were both older, much past like child rearing sort of age. And God's like, look, I'm going to give you a kid. And that kid is going to kind of be like the, the foundational sort of generational thing where everything else is going to come through. And Abraham's like, hey, it's not happening fast enough, and I'm aging pretty quick, and I'm already way past age. And so Abraham and Sarah talk, like, hey, we got to get this thing going. So in his own strength or in his own mind, his own might, he goes, hey, I'm going to have a kid over here. And they kind of say, hey, here's what you're going to do. You're going to take a girl who was a slave uh, to Abraham, and then uh, and then you have a baby through her, right? Now, when that happens... All of a sudden, years later, God actually keeps his promise to Abraham and Sarah. So Hagar gets pregnant with a child. And then later on, Abraham and Sarah get pregnant with a child. And the two, the two children are Isaac and Ishmael. Now, this is, it looks at, you know, Jewish scripture and it looks at the Old Testament. If we were to look at that. What we find is we have like this, this almost like competing sort of tension that's in the text and it just continues to grow. Now what Paul is about to do is take this whole text and this whole narrative and he's going to unpack it in a way where it illuminates what God thinks about us and how we navigate through this performative sort of nature connected to God's love, right? So here's what he says. He says this. Now, he says these things are being taken figuratively. What he's saying is like, what I'm about to say, what I'm about to do is I'm going to take all this, I'm going to sort of jumble it up and look at it a little bit differently. And then we're going to talk about sort of the principle that's, you know, kind of underneath all of that. Now, I think this is really important to note because if you were to read this story in the Old Testament, which I think you should, um, you find that Hagar in particular is a victim in every part of this story. In fact, in no way is Paul, you know, condoning slavery. In no way is Paul saying that this should happen this way. In no way um, is, is Paul kind of outlining those things. So he's saying that there's this figurative nature to what he's about to say. Um, and I think as you look at this, you have to kind of navigate that tension in the text, right? So here's what he says. He says, the women represent two different covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. And this is Hagar, right? And so he's saying like the traditional way of looking at this is there's two covenants that were sort of looked at or made. One of the covenant is now from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. This is kind of the current view. And then he goes on, he says, now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem. Now, this is kind of one of those things, if you're just reading through Scripture quickly, it's so easy to miss. But the people who were being false teachers to the Galatian Gentiles or non-Jews were Jewish people who were sort of saying, hey, you've got to keep all of these laws and all of this you know, sort of legalistic approach. And what Paul is kind of turning on his head is like, hey, you had typically thought about the Gentiles in this way, but in this context, Hagar is actually going to be the one from which she is actually the one who is free, right? And so he begins to connect the slavery to the people who are actually keeping all of the rules and trying to do all of the things just right and check the boxes. And then he goes on, he says, but the Jerusalem that is above is free and she is our mother. Now, again, it's so easy to rush through this and not kind of look into the contextual things that Paul's talking about. What Paul is saying is there's a way of being in the world that is connected to bondage and slavery and, and a way of being in the world where you're just sort of kind of fastened down 
to this performance sort of thing. And Paul goes, but there is another way that is connected to freedom and obedience through open-handedness and relationship. And that's a whole different thing. And then he goes on and he quotes this passage um, out of another section of, you know, sort of these ancient texts. And it says, the, the passage that he quotes says this, it says, For it is written, Be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child, shout for joy and cry aloud that you were never in labor. And then it goes on and says, Because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband. And the narrative that he's calling back to is one that flips all of this on its head and said, the one that you thought was blessed through keeping the rules and through keeping all the law exactly right and striving and striving and striving for God's love, that's actually where the bondage and slavery is. But there's a different way of being in the world. Verse 28, he goes on, he says, Now, you brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of the promise. That you are children of the promise. And he goes on, he says, And at that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. And he says, And it is the same now. Which is very connected to the narrative. That, that those two sons would have tension, and those two sons would, would you know create this whole sort of you know, tension in the world and it'd be back and forth. And the, the back and forth that he's really talking about and that he's alluding to underneath this narrative is one of freedom and then one of slavery to trying to connect your performance to something else. And then he goes on, he says, but what does scripture say? He says, get rid of the slave woman and her son for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son which to his audience would have been one of the most controversial things to say. Which is to say that you thought through the rules and regulations and you thought through the check boxes and the performance that you could be right with God. But he's going, no, the inheritance, the blessing, the connection and the deeper relationship and the new way of being in the world that Jesus had taught about wasn't connected through that. It was connected through love and freedom and relationship. And Paul goes on and he says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not called, uh, we're not children of the slave woman, but we are of the one who is free. And I think this is like a really interesting sort of wrap up to some of the things that Paul had already been teaching throughout this letter to the, the people of Galatia. What he's saying is at the end of the day, the person who is working to perform to receive God's love is actually the one who kind of misses it all together. But the person who understands that it's not about being under the law, it's not about this oppressive hand of God that's looking at you and saying, check all the boxes, always do all the right things, you have to measure up first, that it's not that person, it's the person who places their trust and their hope and their love in him. Now, this is one of those things that you could read a hundred times and you could think about it in terms of somebody else, but the truth is that this is all of us to an extent. 
Like we're all sort of conditioned to an extent to believe that our performance is connected to receiving love, that our significance is connected to how well we perform in the world, that our acceptance in a relationship is connected to how well we do in the relationship. But Paul's going, no. Grace and love and freedom and relationship with God. And this new kingdom that Jesus taught isn't connected to how well you do. It's connected to something that you can never do for yourself. It's connected to his grace alone. God isn't waiting on you to measure up. God is waiting for you to trust in him. That's a different thing. It's a different posture. That's a different way of thinking about the world. It's a different way of being when you come to God open-handed with the fullness of your own humanity and you're not trying to perform for him, but you are simply living as if you're already fully loved and accepted. That's a different thing. God's not waiting on you to be good enough or to get things right all the time or to keep all the check boxes or have a quiet time every day before your day starts or to sing the right songs all the time or to never mess up. God wants the fullness of you and your heart and your life long before you have it all together. Because what he did on your behalf, what Jesus did on your behalf, was to make a way for you to be connected to God long before you checked all the boxes. He wants your heart. Now, I wanted to be able to give you like four or five like great application steps from this, right? Where you can just kind of walk away and go like, here's the you know, four or five things that I do now. And that would be great, except for... What Paul is really talking about is a restructuring of the way that you think about faith and the way that you think about life and the way that you think about your actions. In fact, you could continue to walk out of here and just do more of the check boxes and get to the end of your life and still miss the beauty and the mystery and the power of a relationship with God. So what I wanted to do is I wanted to sort of give you a question. I want to give you a question that hopefully cuts through a lot of the performance kind of things and gets to the heart of an area, or maybe for some of us, including me, several areas where we're trying to perform to get love and acceptance from God. And the question is this, what area of your life are you working for the approval of God rather than living from the love of God that you've already received? Let me say that one more time. What area of your life are you working for the approval of God rather than living from the love of God that you've already received. I'll tell you for me, right? I'll, I'll tell you for me. I'm, I'm a dad. I got a four-year-old and I got a two-year-old. And I grew up in a single-parent home. I grew up where it was just me and my mom, you know, uh, as a kid. And I had the best mom in the world. She was phenomenal. But there was always sort of a gap, right? There was always kind of a thing when, you know, you wanted a dad around. And then on top of that, let's also be really honest, there's something about growing up in a single parent home where you're really looking for some of the things that a dad can only teach you, right? Am I, you know what I'm saying? Like, I remember being like a kid and wanting to learn how to shave. And you know, most guys, they just go steal their dad's razor for a little while, right? And then they try it out. But it's a little awkward when you steal your mom's Venus, 
You, you know what I'm saying? I mean, that's just a little weird, a little, yeah. And there's this part of me that grew up and I, and I remember like trying to learn things that I felt like I needed to learn and then trying to perform in ways where I was like, you know, looking for approval, specifically of men or coaches or, you know, that sort of thing. And then something really interesting happened when we had Henry, my son, that I had this whole wave of emotions of going, I don't know what to do as a dad. And personally for me, now my story is different than your story, but there was a part of me that goes, I don't know how to measure up because I don't, I don't know, I don't know what to do. I never, I never saw a dad in the home. And probably for the first year of having a kid, there was a part of me that not only felt like I didn't measure up, but there was a part of me that went, I want God to be pleased with me. I want my wife. I want my, you know, one-year-old son who, you know, I, I, want, I want everybody to be pleased with my performance of being a father. And in the midst of that performance, it was so easy to miss the fact my wife was already pleased with me. And, and that God wasn't waiting on me to be able to check all the right boxes for him to say, hey, you know, I love you in that way. No. In fact, the performance stuff that I was pushing for so hard as this new dad was really wrapped up in me going, how do I earn the approval of others, but probably more importantly for a per, for me as a person of faith, how do I earn the approval of God who gave me this child to, you know, I'm glad I'm out of my league. I don't know what to do. I'll never forget, I was in a conversation with somebody and it just shifted and they looked at me and it was connected to this question, but what they said was, how long are you going to try to prove that, that you can be a dad? When will you shift and just acknowledge that God wanted you to be a dad? And has equipped you for that. And you and they encouraged me from that point to go, and now it's time to just live from that rather than trying to live for it. Now, honestly, that's one area of about a dozen that I could probably talk about. But I think it's so important for us, even as followers of Jesus, to go, how do we unearth those parts of our lives where we're just seeking approval, either from others or, or ultimately from God? Or that we're seeking significance by being a person who is, you know, performing well. For some of us, this comes in the form of our jobs or our money, right? That I prove that I'm worthy by what I can produce and then I get more for that, whether it's recognition or, you know, moving up a ladder or those kinds of things. But at the heart of it, like when you get past all of the BS, right, and you get to the, you get to the heart of what's actually happening, what you find is this need or this desire to connect your performance to getting something from God that God has already given you. And that's the fullness of his love. It's the fullness of his grace. That's the fullness of a relationship with him. And he's inviting you just to lean in and accept that and live from it rather than trying to achieve it or live for it. Bottom line is this. God isn't waiting on you to measure up. God is waiting for you to trust him. And I hope you wrestle with the question that we talked about. I hope you wrestle with this allegorical sort of story that Paul kind of led us through. 
But more than anything else, my prayer for you and my hope for you is that when you get to the end of your life and you look back on it, my hope for you is that when you get to that point in your life, you look over the course of it and you're able to say you spent more days living from something that you had already received rather than trying to get something or live for something that was already yours anyway. The God of the universe loves you enough to give Jesus for you. And Jesus says the new kingdom is one where you're not having to perform to receive from God. God has already given you what you need.